You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Patty Hayes, who has spent the last five decades researching the world of intelligence. The result is his book, Queen of Spies, Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spymaster. Thank you, Patty, for taking the time to talk to us here at the National Spy Museum. Thank you. So one of the things I always want to ask authors is what was their inspiration for writing their book? This is, as you say, the first biography of a Cold War SIS career officer in 30 years, and really one of only the two or three ever published if we exclude the betrayers, you know, the Blakes and the Philbies. So what led you to want to write a book about Daphne Park? I think, I suppose, there's an expression in Ireland, and I'm sure you have it across here in the United States as well, that if you want to make rabbits chew, you must first catch a rabbit. And uh, so I would met Daphne Park during her life. As you mentioned, I've been very interested in the intelligence business for a long time. Uh, and she gave an interview uh, in the early 90s as part of the sort of British intelligence coming out of the shadows a little bit. And, and through some connections, I was able to get to meet her for afternoon tea in the House of Lords. And so that really sparked my interest in her as a person. And then when she died in 2010, um, I felt that that biography was perhaps on the cards. And I started to work on it. And the result is the Queen of Spies. And with any intelligence book, as many people out there know, uh, sources can be incredibly difficult. This is not an uh, industry that likes to advertise what they've done. Even sources from 40, 50 years ago are still classified in many respects. As you alluded to, British intelligence really hasn't had a long history, maybe only two decades now, of being open to the public. How did you find the necessary source material to write this book, other than speaking to her, which is amazing to have that opportunity? But outside of that, where did you go? Um, well, I, I, I started off um, just researching um, the people that were around. A lot of the people that she had worked with were retired. Uh, and, and so you could sort of find out where they lived through sort of directory type inquiries and stuff like that. And I just started getting in touch with them. Um, most of them refused to speak to me, but enough spoke to me uh, to enable me to, to start to build a picture. Let's work our, walk our, uh, our audience a little bit through her life because I can admit – 
you know, I do this for a living. I'd heard the name Daphne Park, but I certainly didn't know a lot about her backstory. So for the listeners out there who are hearing her name for the first time, she has a pretty extraordinary and unlikely path to the levels. Like you said, the House of Lords. Uh, she was semi-literate growing up in Africa. Can you can you want to walk us through her early life a little bit? Yeah, I mean, she was she was her parents met in in Africa. Her father, in fact, came from Ireland, uh, had emigrated to Africa to cure TB, um, and they met and they married and they had Daphne. And uh, life didn't go too well for him, so he ended up in Tanganyika, uh, panning for gold on the River Lupa, and it was really a, a sort of very hard scrabble existence. And his wife and the two children were about a four or five day walk away. Uh, living in a tiny little hut on a coffee plantation. Uh, they had no electric electricity, they had no water, they had no sanitation. Uh, and her lessons came to her um, from a correspondence school run by the daughter of the Anglican Archbishop in Dar es Salaam. And that was her life, and that probably would have been her life, and we never would have known about her. Uh, but this woman uh, saw that Daphne had something, and she wrote to her mother when she was 11, and said to her, Mrs. Park, your daughter Daphne is going to waste her life away. Can you not send her to England to be educated? And so her mother knew that this would be farewell. She'd never see her daughter again, and she didn't see her, in fact, for about 15 or 16 years. She pawned her jewellery, spent all her savings, and sent her daughter to be educated in London by her two grand-aunts. And this, and this is right <laughs> before World War II breaks out, so she's, yeah. she's old enough at the time to uh, want to be involved in World War II. And this is you know, for Americans uh, who make up a lot of our listenership, uh, the role of women in World War II is somewhat well known. I had Rosie the Riveter and working in the factories. And there are some pretty extraordinary women who go on to work with the OSS. Uh, but the British SOE, the Special Operations Executive, the, the guys who were, were sent in to set Europe ablaze, uh, did not have a very uh, progressive view of women being involved. But Daphne wanted to be part of the war effort. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 the whole idea of, of, of women um, bearing arms, first of all, uh, it was against the Geneva Convention. And, and so there was a lot of people just said that there was no women should bear arms. And the only British service women who bore arms in World War II were part of SOE, as you mentioned. Uh, Daphne was part of, of, of a separate part of it, and she specialized in teaching agents their codes. And that was her particular skill. And she graduated from that to actually becoming a briefing and dispatching officer, which is quite extraordinary for a 22-year-old girl at the time. And, and not just dispatching anybody. She worked closely with the Jedberg teams, the very famous Jeds, uh, who were three-man teams made up of a, an American, a Brit, and then a local, usually a French resistance man. And, you know, and these are not only famous, but they produce many of the uh, more famous people, leaders later on in both the British and American intelligence agencies. Yeah, Bill Colby, who headed up the CIA, uh, knew her well. And that was a name she was uh, quite shameless in dropping later in life <laughs> when she met CIA officers. She's quite trying to say, well, I know Bill Colby, you know. Uh, so, yeah, she did. Yeah, she met a lot of those. Lucien Canine was another. Well, and even with this service during the war, when the war ended, much like in the United States, uh, there's the expectation that women would go back to their pre-war roles. And that certainly was the case in Britain. And so after the war, she really didn't know what to do with herself. Uh, but she did apply for SIS, which many people would know as MI6. 
uh, but she got rejected at first. Yeah, uh, she did. I think, I think, as far as I can really sort of figure out, she she realized that the, was a door was open to her and it was fast closing, uh, and that was the situation for women throughout society. And she realized that if she could get into the secret world, she loved the secret world. She really loved it, and so she applied. She was shot down really because of her gender, and also they were a bit anti-SOE, really an SIS at the time. Uh, but she had a connection. She had a friend, and and so she managed to get a job with another agency in Vienna. Quite extraordinary. She never accepted rejection. Well, and and her real other potential possibilities would be a secretary or a teacher or something like that. Can you talk a little, it's an interesting concept, the, 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 uh, the aversion to hiring SOE people in SIS. But I think it's really interesting why. Can you explain a little bit about their, their rationale. Well, first of all, there was, a, there was an old saying in, in, in the Second World War that if the RAF and the Navy had, had pursued the Germans with the same intensity that they pursued each other, the war would have been over a lot sooner. And, and so even today, as you see it, you, you get a lot of just rivalries between intelligence agencies, just the way the life is, unfortunately. Also, SOE specialized in, in blowing up bridges and stuff like that and bangs. And SIS specialized in gathering intelligence. So right. the two of them really were were sort of very different in that sense. You mentioned that she got a job in Vienna, and I think that this is my my area of expertise, the idea of, of trying to acquire German scientific and technical, technical secrets uh, right at the end of the war. Can you talk a little bit about what her job was here? Yeah, she was. I mean, essentially, what, what, what there was a four-way scramble for these secrets. Uh, the Americans, the British, the French, and the Russians, they went after those sort of German scientists with a will because they realized very quickly uh, that whilst one war is ending, another war was beginning. And the United States Air Force got the cream of the crop. They got the hundred of the top German missile scientists, mm-hmm. including Dr. Werner von Braun. Um, and so Daphne was sort of part of that effort. So it was a sort of like uh, combining and also a bit of internal rivalry between the four powers. And so she went to Vienna and she spent two years there uh, hunting down sort of German scientists and inviting them to, to, to Britain. Uh, once they came to Britain, they were sort of locked up until they got all the secrets out of them. Yeah. <laughs> the farm hall and the other ones are really great stories behind yes, uh, bugging these, these manors inside the yeah. English countryside. Yeah. Um, Later, she was made what was called a stay-behind officer. And, and this is where her contacts during the war with the French resistance really, really come into play. Yeah, you're right. I mean, what, it was extraordinary because what happened when World War II broke out uh, was that the Secret Intelligence Service had no sources anywhere in Europe. They, they had no hidden radios. They had no sort of post response addresses in neutral countries that messages could be sent to. So they were completely blind. And it took them about two or three years before they could establish any agents on the continent. And so they were very concerned that if the Russians invaded Western Europe or if there were sort of communist-inspired revolutions in Italy or France, um, that they would have the means uh, at the, to fight it at, at worst and, and so it's certainly to get intelligence out. And so, yes, as you said, she used her wartime connections for that. And that got her into the intelligence branch. That was a big break for her. Was the expectation was that if the Soviets invaded they would essentially do what the Nazis did and take over the vast majority of continental Europe before we were able to stop them. And so having people in place made a whole lot of sense at the yeah, time. All the way to the channel ports. Yep. Yes. Uh, and that posting, she was very successful at it, and that allowed her to get to Moscow, which I guess has to be the kind of the holy grail at that time of SIS postings. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, I think the CIA had its sort of Soviet and East European division, and SIS had sub block. And, and that was the cream because that was the threat to Britain at the time that dominated their thinking. Um, and so what they liked to do was they liked to send people to Moscow uh, who had no obvious intelligence background. 
and and so they, and and also they they like to send women too because the Russians' view about women was that, that women were were juniors and they were just secretaries. So a woman with no known intelligence background had a chance to operate in Moscow. And this is an, an amazing time. I'm using that word somewhat facetiously because in Moscow, it's very difficult to have agents that aren't known because of George Blake and Kim Philby had essentially spilled the beans to the Soviets about all the people who were being sent there. But somehow she had avoided being in contact with them. So they, they even didn't really know who yeah, she was. You're right. And she, she, they, the SAS did introduce, in fairness to them, compartmentalization. Uh, and they did, did, did try to keep things in little boxes. And she just avoided meeting Philby just by luck. And also Blake, I, I, when he came back from Korea, she was elsewhere. So she was lucky that way. But they did make her fairly quickly. And you, yeah, well, <laughs> well, you tell a great story uh, in the book. Um, it's actually in the, the prologue and then later on where she learned something very interesting about Soviet counterintelligence when she was moving through Moscow. You alluded to it already about her being a woman. We can talk a little bit about uh, th- this tradecraft is fascinating where she kind of said, huh, let's see if this is true. And then she tested it. And it turned out that it was a huge mistake. By the Soviets. Yeah, it, it's, it's the, the technical term is called transferred imaginings, which is shocking. Uh, but it really means that sort of um, assuming that people on the other side would behave in a particular way because you behave that way. So when she was out and about a couple of times with one of her male colleagues and they would be followed by the local sort of thugs, uh, she noticed that if they separated for no particular reason, um, that their followers just followed the man. And this happened once or twice and it triggered something in her. She started to test it out. And it was, it was a little flaw in the Soviet system. If a man and a woman were out together, the team would always follow the man if they split up. So when she had to meet this agent that they had, a guy called Yevgeny Brick, um, she went out with a male colleague. They strolled around. And then about an hour before the given time, uh, they sort of said their goodbyes. Off he wheeled, followed by the Soviets. And then she was able to make uh, the meeting with the agent. It was very, very clever, very good insight for mm-hmm. her. One, one of the things they were really focusing on there was what we call open source intelligence, OSINT. And, and things that the audience may not understand are incredibly important. You know, these aren't top secret military documents. These aren't insights about Soviet missile production. Things like phone books and train timetables and just published books were incredibly important at the time for British intelligence. You're right. I mean, uh, the, the British and indeed the CIA both had, had very, very significant efforts put in uh, just to acquire. Uh, the Soviet Union was a closed society, first of all. So you, could, you just couldn't see inside. You couldn't see around it. And, uh, but there were still visitors. There were people visiting relatives, people going on holidays and so on. And so people were encouraged, the intelligence agencies, intelligence officers themselves and visitors to acquire every single thing they could. Uh, about life in the Soviet Union. And if that meant going to, to a, a sort of a conference or whatever, is even sometimes pretending to be Russian, they would do that. My background focuses on nuclear weapons, on deterrence, on nuclear intelligence. And so what Daphne did or helped to do in Moscow is pretty extraordinary to me. Uh, the, the idea of discovering where the surface-to-air missile emplacements were uh, outside of Moscow, because this is for, for strategic air command, for uh, Western deterrence. It's, it's essential to know whether or not you can get through uh, going, you know, whether Stanley Baldwin was right that the bomber will always get through. Uh, and, and she was instrumental uh, in figuring out that the Soviets had now ringed 
Moscow with these advanced surface-to-air missiles. Can you tell a little bit about that story? Yeah, it was. It was, it was herself and, and the British military attache were, were on a train, just a train journey around Moscow, and they saw this installation, um, and it consisted of, of, of two sort of rings, steel rings, uh, which for all the world uh, looked like a yo-yo. Um, and so they had a look at it and they made a sketch of it and got a snap picture. And it was sent back to, to Washington and to London. And uh, the scientists in Washington looked at it and they sort of said they looked to us like two radar disks. Um, and maybe the beginning of, of a surface-to-air missile installation around Moscow. The British had a look at it and they thought it was for rock crushing. And so, so they agreed. They sort of said, well, if it was for rock crushing, there'd only be one of them because you wouldn't need a ring of rock crushers. Right. Uh, but if it was, a, if yeah. it was <laughs> an anti-missile, there would be a ring of them. And so they went out. Uh, in, in, and it was a circumference of about 200 miles, and there was about 50 of them being built in, the, in that circle. And that was the first thing that told them that there was a risk uh, that indeed the bombers might not right. get through. Daphne Park was also in Moscow in 1956. And for anyone who knows uh, diplomatic history from the Cold War, 1956 is a monumental year in Cold War history. Uh, and there's two major events that she was tangentially a part of, at least the British were. One is the Hungarian uprising. Uh, which she was able to watch from uh, from Moscow, and the other is Suez. And although Suez took place many, many miles away, uh, she was actually instrumental in helping the British understand the potential Russian response yeah, to Suez. Yeah, she was. I mean, it, this, this was it was one of those things. Um, confluence in, is 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 critically important. And when you have two sort of crises, which were not directly connected, but both of them involved the Western and Eastern powers. You had the potential for conflict. The British had invaded Egypt to seize back control of the Suez Canal. Uh, The Russians then decided to put down uh, the revolution in Budapest with a lot of violence, and at the same time threatened to send an army to Egypt uh, to help the Egyptians fight the British and French invaders. And if that had meant that that Russian and British troops were faced off each other in battle, that would have been war. Uh, the Americans were very annoyed. They were very annoyed with the British action, rightly. Um, and so they weren't giving a lot of help in terms of aerial surveillance and so on. And so London sent Daphne down to the Crimean ports that have been in the news recently um, and asked her to see on the ground, uh, could she see any signs of, of a Soviet embarkation? Because obviously, if you're going to send maybe 50 or 100,000 troops, uh, that requires a lot of lorries, a lot of fuel bars right. and so on. So she made this undercover journey of 1,000 miles to get down to the ports of Sevastopol and Odessa uh, to see where the Russians, in fact, beginning the process, and they weren't. And uh, war did not break out. Khrushchev was bluffing. Yeah, that would have been a significant <laughs> game changer, too. Because, I mean, the, the, the Americans had tried to stay on the sideline, but they're not going to s- stay on the sideline if the Russians and the British are fighting a shooting war at that point. No, that would have been World War. So uh, w- if you Google Daphne Park, one of the first things that pops up is her role in the Congo. Uh, and I think that's really one of the kind of milestone moments in her career. I think there's very few people, unless they've really studied Cold War history, uh, that know a lot about what happened down there. But she was made the chief of station, uh, what the Americans would call the station chief, uh, in Leopoldville, with the, uh, you know, in the middle of Congo. But for those out there that don't get it, uh, Congo is an incredibly important country in, in the 1950s and 60s, not just because of its size, it was massive, but also because of its resources. Again, I, I've run into the Congo in my research because it's a huge source of uranium. Uh, and certainly was during World War II. But for the British, it bordered nine different countries, many of which were very important 
for for British uh, part of the what used to be part of the British Empire now becoming uh, ex colonies of the British. Uh, did I cover everything, or can you talk a little bit more about why the Congo mattered? To British intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I think it, what happened really was about six months before the Congo became independent in June 1960, and about six months before that, maybe a year, um, a senior official from British intelligence went sort of on a sort of an African tour and, and so on, visited most of the main capitals, and they looked at the Congo, they knew it was going to become independent, and they knew uh, that the Soviets were going to make a serious attempt uh, to turn that into a sort of a client state of Soviets. So really what happened was the Congo became the first sort of face-off on Africa, uh, first proxy war, if you like, in Africa, not war, but pr proxy face-off between the West and the East. And so um, the British sent Daphne Park, a CIA sent a guy called Larry Devlin. Um, the Congo went independent. Uh, its first prime minister was a man called Patrice Lumumba, and he wanted to take the country uh, towards a Marxist state. Um, not sure that he was a communist. He may or may not have been, but he was going to sort of cozy up to the Russians. And the Western people decided that that was something <laughs> of which they would not push, I think, right. as Winston Churchill said. And so um, they, they started a process of destabilization, and it ended up with Lumumba being assassinated. By someone. By someone. By someone. Yeah. Uh, well, what's interesting to me is that this is where her childhood really becomes a significant asset because she was able – she didn't do what a lot of others would have and just kind of talk to uh, the former Belgian – you know, people who were there, the upper level. She worked among the people. She talked uh, independence in many cases, especially when it's done so quickly, right? The Belgians were like, you're independent. Congratulations. In a lot of those cases, the lower level guys, the sergeants, the people who are at a municipal level end up becoming the presidents and the high levels. And she knew this. And so she worked among those that would not be considered, you know, assets because she realized in the future they may be very important. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I she had that, her, her, it was a big change for her to leave South Block and go to Africa, but she was going back to her roots. And uh, so, for example, uh, she lived in the African city within Leopoldville, not in the diplomatic block. A diplomatic block uh, would have been fine, but she figured she'd spent her evening sipping pink gins, uh, where she far preferred to be sort of cooking traditional suppers for, for guys uh, on the road back and forth to the airport and meeting them. Um, she used to do the sort of diplomatic bag run every week or 10 days, and that was about four days of travel each way, and she would stop off. She was an inveterate talker. She'd meet and listen and charm. She had an extraordinary ability, Vince, to, to charm. She charmed the birds off the trees. You know? Well, and you even write that she had a pretty decent relationship with Lumumba himself. I mean, at one point they were not friends necessarily, but they were certainly colleagues or close. Yes, she would have that. I mean, that would be her job. And her job yeah. basically be to meet people, get close to them, understand them, understand um, where they were coming from, understand what they were likely to do. And, and she'd have no problem. She'd have, I mean, at one stage, uh, Lumumba was a Boy Scout, and, and uh, the, the Boy Scouts used to uh, train in the grounds of the British Embassy, and she'd be there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've already talked about some extraordinary things that she's done, and so you'd think the British, or at least across the board, would consider her uh, a national treasure. Uh, but after this, she actually goes back uh, to London, and she's fingered by MI5, as a potential Soviet spy, um, at least temporarily. Uh, and I think the story is interesting because it's because she went to a Cambridge language school where just about everybody else had gone. Um, you're right. It all goes back to, to, to a famous CIA officer called uh, James Angleton. And, and uh, <clears throat> he, he formed a view 
uh, based on a Russian defector that, that the KGB had this strategic deception plan um, and that they had infiltrated all of the top levels of government in Western society. And it's like these things. You can't prove a negative. You couldn't prove they hadn't been infiltrated. Right. And, and it was enough that if you stood sideways in front of a mirror, you became an object of suspicion. Um, and a senior officer told me that on a lonely road in Africa, a very senior counterintelligence officer told him and said, I'll call him Joe. He said, Joe, I can assure you, he said, that Daphne Park is a KGB agent. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, other, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, but, you know, about nine or ten, I think, CIA officers had their careers terminated. Yep. And quite a few um, SIS officers were, were shown the door to, she, she wasn't, obviously. Yeah, well, for Angleton, Kim Philby's betrayal was uh, kind of a breaking point for him. Uh, and we, you know, we know a whole lot about how much damage he did to CIA and also for, for SIS. Um, her next posting is something that might interest a lot of Americans, and that's Hanoi. Uh, and, and mainly because it's incredibly important for the United States because we had no mission there. Uh, the British kept their mission there. Uh, and she was posted there uh, in the 1970s. Yeah, it was 6970. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things, of course, we wanted to know was, is where are our POWs? And I think that's something we couldn't do ourselves. And um, I mean, what she used to do, she used to uh, go back to, to Saigon every about four or five weeks. And when she would go back, she would be debriefed by the CIA people in Saigon uh, who, would, who would give her, you know, really tell her, get everything they could from her and then also tell her you know, what they really needed to know. And there were two um, prisoner of war camps in around Hanoi. One was actually in the, in the center of the city itself, and one was about maybe 20 miles outside it. And while she was there, she would have been giving them the information because they actually sent in a rescue mission for the one outside the city. But unfortunately, even though the troops went in and took control of the prison camp, uh, the prisoners had been moved uh, a couple of days previously, and, and so they weren't able to effect a rescue. But yes, she there, there are consistent rumors, Vince, that, that she helped run uh, a KGB source uh, in Hanoi. And, and uh, the more I, I, I look at it, the more likely I think it is. Not, running would have been limited now because you would have been very, very brief brush passes. But the probability is, I think, that there may have been a Soviet diplomat uh, who had been um, recruited by the CIA earlier on. Well, you, you, you're right that there's not a lot that was known about what her product was in Hanoi. Uh, but when she returned, she was the first woman to be awarded the CMG. And, and because I don't know British medals very much, I Googled this. <laughs> this is the companion of St. Michael and George. But this is usually given to those of higher rank, to people or people who did something extraordinary. So while we don't know what she did, she must have done something. That's a good spot. And um, what normally happens in SIS is that, is that there's a... An award called an OBE, uh, the Order of the British Empire, um, and that is given uh, for um, achievement of a specific uh, project or objective, not unlike, say, the Intelligence Medal for the mm -hmm. CIA. And she got that when she came back from Congo. And so there's no doubt that was really was, was for the work she'd done with Larry Devlin. And so when she came back from, from Hanoi, she was given the CMG, which invariably goes with rank. Um, it goes, it's like a, an ambassador in the British system would get a KCMG and it'd be called Sir. Um, and in SIS, they don't call them Sir, there's a CMG, and it goes with rank. As they mm -hmm. say, the, the, the ribbon goes with the rations, yeah. And she she was not at that point at the rank that she should have gotten this. No, she was. Um, it was another five six years before she achieved that rank. Yeah. So we can we can uh, speculate. I think that's we can. as far as we can go. 
Um, her final post in SIS was actually a very high level, a controller for the Western Hemisphere. And she was the first woman now also to reach the job of controller. Can you explain controller to American audiences? Because we don't have that no. with the CIA. No. It's, it's, I think it's the approximate of a divisional director with the CIA. That that's, would be my understanding. And so what SIS uh, did or does still, it would have seven area controllers. So its world would be divided up into seven. So there would have been a Central European, there would have been an African, an Asian, and so on. And she was given the job of controller Western Hemisphere, which meant that uh, she was the principal point of contact between the MI6 uh, and the CIA and indeed the FBI. Um, and she was also then responsible for any intelligence that the, that the British captured in Central and South America. It would include Cuba at the time, which uh, until, let's say, a day ago, we really had <laughs> nothing going on. Um, I think the liaison position is incredibly important here because, as you write, she could influence the messages going from SIS to CIA and conversely kind of put her own interpretation on the messages going from CIA to SIS, kind of like what I think they mean is. Uh, very true. I mean, she was absolutely pivotal. Uh, and, and as it happened, I, w- I was at a function on Monday night uh, in New York, and I was speaking to the, to the wife of, of the special agent in charge of the FBI's New York office at that time, and who remembered vividly meeting Daphne. So she was, she was across here an awful lot. She was meeting these people, uh, and they were very appreciative for, for what she had done in Cuba. I think that at that time, the CIA had about 15 agents in Cuba, and they discovered uh, that all of them had been turned by the Cuban intelligence service. And so they went to Daphne, and they said, look, we really need some intelligence from this island. And, and my understanding is that she got it for them. Good enough that when she came back to Britain at the end of her career and she retired, she was named to the House of Lords, which, uh, again, for American audiences, they may not grasp uh, how, in, how important this is. Can you talk a little bit about – I know there's a lot there, but can you talk a little bit about what this means? Well, in the British system, uh, there are two houses, uh, but what's called the upper and lower house. And traditionally, the lower house is the, is the house that has all of the power, and, and which is members of parliament. Uh, and then there is a sort of an upper house, which is made up of, of hereditary peers, lords, if you like, and ladies, um, and then peers that are appointed by government. So it's, it's a way for the British government to uh, recognize people uh, who have made uh, what they see as outstanding contributions to, to aspects of British life. And um, it was a great honor for her because uh, I'm told that, that even though she, even in retirement, she still... Um, made use of her contacts in Africa and stuff like that and helped out. Um, And uh, she was, in 1990, Margaret Thatcher appointed her um, Baroness Park. She cried in the House of Lords when she was inducted. The House of Lords is full of people who are aristocrats, the blue blood going back generations. And now you have somebody who was uh, semi-literate Africa, uh, no running water or indoor plumbing now being in the House of Lords with all these you know, people who have been holding titles for hundreds of years. It's pretty extraordinary. It is. And, you know, uh, that, that woman, Mary Chambers, uh, who wrote to Daphne's mother in 1921, uh, was still alive and living in England when Daphne was appointed to the mm. House of Lords and they had lunch together. I, I, it was such a – I could imagine – I can't imagine what that lunch would yeah. have been like. I, so we, we wanted to actually have you in this time because in the United States, or, or you know, you may be listening to this in in, in Audienceville uh, in the next year or so. But we are recording it in March. Uh, it will be posted in the end of March. Um, and March here in the United States is Women's History Month, and we really wanted uh, to focus on Daphne because 
uh, her gender played such a significant role in her life, both good and bad. We've already talked about some of the bad, the jobs that were not available to her in SOE and then SIS. One of the extraordinary things also is she couldn't get married. We, we, we didn't talk about this, but she, she, the men could get married all they wanted to, but the women at SIS had to quit if they got married. Yeah, I mean, um, the whole role of, of, of women in, in, in working in Britain and stuff like that is it's littered with these things. Uh, and eventually what was called the marriage bar, which had a... a to a lot of people, it was lifted for practically everybody in, in the civil service. Uh, male or female could get married and keep their jobs, except as uh, senior women in SAS. It was the most extraordinary thing. Uh, so a junior secretary in SAS could get married and she could keep her job. A senior man could get married and keep his job, but not a senior woman. And when she did meet somebody in later life that she might have married, I think at that stage she was, if I can say, wedded to her career. And we've talked about sometimes where her her gender was an asset, you know, within the Soviet Union, and 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 I think throughout her career, you know, you hint at this in the book, and sometimes you're very, you know, forget hinting, you're very overt about it, where she was underestimated because she was a woman, and she took full advantage of that. She did. I mean, she said she said of herself that she said I went around um, looking like a fat missionary. She said, and <laughs> and nobody could see any any harm or danger in that at all. And, and she played that one to perfection. The book is Queen of Spies: Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spy Master. The author is Patty Hayes. Patty, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. And thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Spycast. Remember. Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.